Well, seeing that no one's anxious to get home for anything special, I've really waxed together a really nice Christmas Lord's Day sermon. Now, for, many, for those of you who have heard me preach uh, Christmas sermons before, you know I've got about three of them and I rotate them. Um, and I've really worked them out really nicely. I mean, they're some of the best Christmas messages you'll ever hear. Okay, I'm just kidding. But this year I thought I'm going to put together something different. And so I'm trying out on you for the first time this message. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at um, the conflict that made Christmas necessary, which is an ongoing conflict with, within our culture and within our world today. So it's going to be a bit of a narrative of a story, kind of a high view story of this, this overarching narrative of the conflict that makes Christmas necessary. And I wanted to begin just by looking at the passage that we actually read together this morning from Luke 2, 1 through 7, and just kind of read this and rehearse this reality for us. Um, let me just read this to us again. Now it happened that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. I mean, we see in verse 1 how God moves nations to bring about his desires. He moves Caesar Augustus in his heart to desire a census to be taken of the inhabited earth, which in verse 2 was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was going to be registered for the census, each to his own city. And so we see this massive movement of humanity because of Caesar Augustus' interest in having a census, but ultimately because of the providential plan and desire of God to have Christ born in a particular place in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and family of David, obviously the royal lineage that Christ needed to be born into, we see right there. In order to register, verse 5, along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was with child. Now it happened that while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the guest room. Have you started sensing and having this awkward feeling over the last decade or so that our culture is working really hard to keep Christ out of Christmas? Christmas parades turned into holiday parades. Christmas trees, now we call them holiday trees. Instead of saying Merry Christmas, most people now are just saying Happy Holidays to each other. It's working. The cultural air in which we breathe, as it starts just making progressive little movements, one decade upon one, it's, it's, in, it's in essence the death by a thousand cuts process. Everywhere we look in our culture, Christ is being stripped from Christmas, even from the White House this year, if you didn't notice some of the statements that were made, uh, Christ was conveniently removed. Well, if you feel this way, it's because it's true. The culture in which we live perpetually seeks to snuff out the name and memory of Christ in every way that it can, and it does so for cause. It's this uh, cultural error in which everyone is breathing 
And I'm going to refer to it as that air, that cultural air we breathe is, and this term sometimes is a little bit harsh, but I want you to just bear with me for a minute. It's the cultural air of what I'm going to call doctrines of demons. Now, that seems kind of like, you know, like that sounds more like Halloween-ish, like, you know, bah, you know, something real just jumps out and grabs you. Well, it's a very subtle thing because the father of lies never just jumps out from behind the tree and scares people. He does it ever so subtly. He does it just a little movement at a little time, a little here, a little there. If we can get you like the frog in the kettle and just turn the fire up just ever so slowly over the, over the passing of time, and I mean over the passing of hundreds of years and hundreds of years, it just doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, the end game, the end goal, there's a conflict that made Christmas so, so necessary. And Paul gives us a little bit of a description of how this plays out practically how this cultural error changes. We see in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, notice Paul says, And you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Now Paul's talking about believers who were dead. They're not dead anymore. They're now alive. They're spiritually alive. But listen to, the, listen to what Paul says about how you once were when you were lost, which lets us know that this is how lost people currently are. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So being dead in transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked, this is how unbelievers walked, and notice, it's according to something, the course of this world. So it lets us know that this world has a course. This world has something that's, that's coursing it, that's moving it. And what courses this world, Paul says, is according to a ruler, a ruler of the power of the air. It's a spirit that is now working in sons of disobedience. And I'm going to say that that's the spirit of Antichrist. It's a spirit that's against Christ. It's a spirit that's against the God of heaven. It's a spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we, formerly, because now God saved us, but this is where unbelievers live. And so we conduct ourselves fleshly. The, the worst narcissistic tendencies that come out from a sin nature is what we see in our culture. It's the cultural air in which we breathe, and it's being moved along by the spirit of Antichrist. Because down here, we were what? By nature, children of wrath. Now, <clears throat> if you use a passage like this with unbelievers, if you were to use this on me when I was an unbeliever, I would have said, you're absolutely out of your mind. I don't think this way. I'm not, I'm not here trying to live for the purposes of Satan, the fallen cherub, I'm just, I'm doing what I want to do the way I want to do it and how I want to do it, right? I mean, right? Isn't that what, that's what we do. But what we fail to realize is this nature that we have, this, this sin nature, it does exactly what the spirit of Antichrist wants us to do. It's, it's dead. It's dead in transgressions and sins. 
we think that we had these, these options, and we do, and what we freely choose to do every time is we choose to sin. We choose to rebel against God. We choose to live in a way that's against Christ. And this is how this cultural air in which we breathe is just moving progressively every decade or so till we find ourselves here in 2022, and we look at the cultural air in which we breathe, and we're really starting to get more concerned about our kids' future and our grandkids' future and our great our great-grandkids, et cetera, and et cetera, and we're saying, come soon, Lord Jesus. It's where we find ourselves. So it's no wonder that Christ has been and will continue to be stripped from everything in the culture in which we are now living because narrow, by the way, is the way that leads to life, and the Scripture says, few there be who find it. But broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go thereby, and so the culture in which we live there's, there, if you want to look at it this way, the, the believing force is, in, in essence, being outmultiplied, outnumbered. I mean, God's the one that's ultimately in charge of salvation, right? Haven't you been surprised sometimes when there's some obvious things that go to the poll for votes, and you're thinking, surely no one would vote against this. This is the morally right thing to do. And then you come back and you realize, oh, there's a lot of people that actually don't view morality from a biblical worldview perspective anymore. Have you ever had that thought? Well, if you have, then you and I have shared some thoughts similarly. Now, before we get too deep in this, I did want to say Merry Christmas. This is the air we breathe. This is the culture in which we breathe. And guess what, Christians? There's never been a better time to do what we learned last week to be because we are salt and we are light. And in America, which is where we live, this unique experiment, this culture in which we live, there's never been a better time to be salt and to let your light shine than the present. So rather than looking at the culture and say, oh man, it's going to hell in a handbasket. Listen, no, people are going to be going to hell. And so he's made you salt and light so that you can let it shine and so that you have lips and you can speak the glorious gospel. We've got to be bolder. The church gathers to be encouraged and strengthened, but then the church scatters. And when we scatter, we've got to become bolder in our witness. Sometimes we want to, we, we wrongly think of being nice by just being silent and capitulating. Well, I know we live in a culture that's morally corrupt with regard to biblical morality so we just don't say anything because we don't want to hurt people's feelings the most loving thing you can do is to kindly share with people that they need the lord and that they need to repent from sin and that they themselves and their narcissistic tendencies for pleasure isn't the moral standard that god has left a moral standard and he's left a compass for us to see the way back home to the father through his son jesus christ So this cultural battle, this conflict that makes Christmas necessary, it takes us all the way back to the book of beginnings. It takes us back to the book of Genesis where we see the creation of man. We see there Adam and Eve having been created in the image of God, male and female. He created them. Boy, that's under attack, isn't it? 
and how they chose to rebel against their creator and how the unalterable consequence, that of death, of permanent separation between a holy God and man, entered into the realm of the human experience. So that down to this very day, think about it, every ailment, every affliction of humankind, every broken body, every disturbed mind, all forms of depression, every wounded, hurting soul, every physical death can trace its roots back to the sin of Adam and Eve. Every last one. The Apostle Paul reminds this of this in Romans 5.12. He says, therefore, just as through one man, that would be Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, that's that spiritual death that Paul was talking about here, and you were dead, in your transgressions and sins, that sin that entered the world came by means of one man, Adam, and then death spread to all people. So death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, whether the fallen sinful mind can appreciate or like this or not, our culpability before God is rooted in Adam. It's not like you're you know, this tabula rasa, this blank slate, and until you do something wrong or there's this age of, of conscious awareness, the, um, what's that age of accountability thing? And, well, really, no one's really lost until they hit the age of 12 or something like this. You know, I'm like, well, show me the verse that says that. I know God's a, a compassionate God, etc. But death spread to all people. I, don't, I didn't see any kind of an insert here of like a particular age range that, that that's when this spreading of death went to all people. It just says it goes to all people. And this is why people everywhere need the Lord because all sin, it's all rooted in Adam. And I know that that's not a very popular doctrine, but that's what the scriptures teach us. And because of Adam, all people stand guilty before God and will be justly condemned to an eternity of hell apart from God forever because of that sin nature. <clears throat> and it's in the garden where man's need for redemption for a Savior finds its genesis. Now, I'm sure we all remember the opening <clears throat> skirmish that took place there in the Garden of Eden, right? How Satan, through the use of a serpent, tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God, and it's here where we do well to ask ourselves the question, why? Why? Why, why was this serpent showing up in the first place for the purpose of tempting Eve to do what she did? Why does Satan do this? Is this just some arbitrary occurrence that's not connected to anything else? Well, what we know is that Satan was himself at one time the highest and the most beautiful and powerful of all created angelic beings. Ezekiel in chapter 28, 14 calls him the anointed cherub. And as the anointed cherub, he rose and rebelled against God. Listen to what he says here in this Isaiah passage that we're familiar with. We have the five I am, I wills of this beautiful cherub. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend before the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. 
this beautiful cherub in the greatest act of pride ever sought to seat himself in the place of God, making himself out to be like the Most High. So when this now fallen cherub, Satan, shows up in the Garden of Eden in full possession of a serpent and speaks to Eve so as to tempt her to rebel against God. It's with that same energy that he shows up with earlier when he himself was desiring to be like God. Gives us some insight into the conflict that makes Christmas necessary. And we know this because of what he says to Eve. He says, for God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. In the same way he wanted to be like God, so now he tempts Eve with the prospects of being like God, knowing good from evil, knowing full well that the outcome of rebellion to God wouldn't be anything good. After all, he was the beautiful cherub that was cast out from heaven, right? He had an understanding that if he wasn't powerful enough to somehow move God from his glorious throne where he could share in some of that glory himself, did he think that Adam and Eve had a chance? Well, of course not. His purpose was to take this most beautiful and glorious creation of man that God made in his image, that God walked in the cool of the day with, and to darken their hearts against God. It was his continual conflict against the God most high that ultimately turns and makes Christmas so necessary. And Satan... uh, through his unrealized ambition of being like God, solicited Eve in that same and like manner. And he does it so subtly, uh, so carefully worded, so eloquently disguised came this seductive invitation of being like God. Unless we forget the father of lies, Satan is still and always serves up deception in this same way. Offering life, you will be like something you've you've never imagined. You'll be like God. Knowing in reality, it just simply brings death, separation. Listen to how one commentator put it. He says it this way. He says it's, quote, poison garnished with a little truth. And that sounds like the way Satan ushers out his lies. Poison garnished with a little truth, enough garnished to disguise the deadly impact of sinking your teeth into such a beautiful apple. And so it seemed that Satan was able to permanently mar God's image bearers, those made in his likeness. If Satan, the once anointed cherub, could no longer be special, he was determined to keep God's creation of man from being special to God as well. Those who were to reflect the brilliance and glory of God were now dark with sin and Satan was pleased. Until God prescribed judgment that followed said rebellion there in the garden to Adam and for his sin, he said that all of humanity would be born under divine judgment. Physical death would now be a reality for all flesh as the curse of sin is felt far and wide and even the earth itself is cursed. Thorns and thistles would abound. To Eve for her sin, physical death, pain and childbearing and a desire to usurp the male leadership that God had ordained in the union between one man and one woman in a very loving, godly way. And for Satan's involvement, he and all who follow him will, have been, will be judged one day and be consigned to a place of eternal punishment 
in hell. But as we see from the rest of the story, this event also became the genesis of God's redemptive plan and how he resolved to rescue men and women from the curse of this fall, the curse of sin for those who had put their faith in his redemptive plan. And thus we see God's plan to bring about a Merry Christmas. In Genesis 3.15, God spoke forth the first ever declarative statement on how he would redeem sinful people and put an end to Satan's rebellion forever. He said in Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the hill and you shall bruise on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. <clears throat> the divine decree here is that there, there will remain enmity between Satan's seed and the seed of a woman. The seed of Satan, those who perpetually live in rebellion against God, if you will, the spirit of Antichrist. And the seed of the woman, who is ultimately none other than Jesus Christ himself. And notice what it says about these. It says that Satan will bruise Christ on the hill, which obviously is a very painful wound, but not permanently fatal, but that Christ would bruise Satan, his seed, on the head, which would prove to be a more permanent and fatal blow. And we see by Genesis 6, we see by Genesis 6, just how serious Satan took this threat of impending judgment. And he moved quickly to thwart the efforts of God against him. And in Genesis 6, we see how Satan attempted to permanently corrupt the human race. And that as a way of preventing the seed of woman who's to crush his head from ever being born. Which we see at the beginning of Genesis 6 where the sons of God, these fallen angelic creatures, procreated with the daughters of men, thereby corrupting the human race through unnatural offspring. Now obviously much more could and needs to be said with regard to that aspect there in Genesis 6, but for now that's going to have to wait because that's, that could be a sermon within a sermon within a sermon. That might even be like a three-parter right there. So we're not ready to dive into that just yet. But it seems that this action was an attempt by Satan through his demonic emissaries to corrupt the human race so that the divine promised seed of woman of Genesis 3 again could not be born. And if successful, Satan's rebellion against God's plan of human redemption history could perhaps be thwarted, and Satan's scheme to devalue the image of God in man could be permanently achieved. So what happens next? Noah, build an ark, Noah. Right? And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. God puts down the rebellion and begins anew. The seed of woman, which was to crush Satan's head and redeem the people of God, remain intact in the loins of Noah and his family. And as the unfolding redemptive history has shown... Satan didn't stop there, did he? But has continued seeking ways to thwart the redemptive plans of God. Even unto today. That, pl that plan and promise that we saw there in Genesis 3.15. 
And as such, following the flood, what did we see? By Genesis 10, Satan has deceived and empowered a man by the name of Nimrod, who became the founder and ruler of ancient Babylon. Nimrod was the son of Cush, who was the son of Ham, who was the son of Noah, thus making Nimrod the great-grandson of Noah. Listen to the account of Nimrod from Genesis chapter 10. Now Cush was the father of Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Yahweh. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. From that land he went out to Assyria and built Nineveh. That is the great city. And then in chapter 11 of Genesis, we get a little bit more with regard to this story. It says there in Genesis 11:1. 1, now the whole earth had the same language and the same words. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And Yahweh said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language and this is what they have begun to do. So now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's language. So Yahweh scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. So in these passages here from Genesis 10 through Genesis 11, we see that Nimrod was the founder and ruler of the first imperial kingdom, Babel, which is ancient Babylon. We also see that Nimrod began to be a mighty one of the earth. And we also see that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. But what does that actually mean, that Nimrod was a mighty, a mighty hunter before the Lord? Listen to some commentary from one of the uh, oldest Old Testament commentaries, uh, Kale and Delich, listen to what they say with regard to Nimrod being a mighty hunter before the Lord. Nimrod was mighty in hunting, and that in opposition to Yahweh. Not before Yahweh in the sense of according to the purpose and will of Yahweh. The name itself, Nimrod, from we will revolt, points to some violent resistance to God. In addition to this, Nimrod, as a mighty hunter, founded a powerful kingdom. And the founding of this kingdom is shown to be by, or the consequence or result of, his strength in hunting, so that the hunting was most intimately connected with the establishment of the kingdom. Hence, if the expression, a mighty hunter, relates primarily to hunting in the literal sense, we must add to the literal meaning the figurative signification of a hunter of men. Nimrod the hunter became a tyrant, a powerful hunter of men. This course of life gave occasion to the proverb, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter, better translation, against the Lord, which immortalized not his skill in hunting beasts, but the success of his hunting of men in the establishment of an imperial kingdom by tyranny and power. Josephus, the historian, also wrote about Nimrod. Listen to what Josephus says with regard to Nimrod. Now, it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. 
He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it were through his means they were happy, and it seems that the ascribing of it would be the, the, building and the, the creation and building of that kingdom. To not ascribe that to God as if it were through his means that they were happy, that they were able to accomplish that, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence on his power. He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again, for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to reach, and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Now the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod and to esteem it a piece of cowardice to submit to God, and they built a tower. It was built of burnt brick, cemented together with mortar made of bitumen, that it might not be liable to admit water. When God saw that they acted so madly, he did not resolve to destroy them utterly since they were not grown wiser by the destruction of the former sinners, but he caused a tumult among them by producing in them diverse languages and causing that through the multitude of those languages they should not be able to understand one another. The place wherein they built the tower is now called Babylon because of the confusion of that language which they readily understood before. For the Hebrews mean by the word Babel, confusion. Nimrod was a man turned against God and one who sought to turn others against God as well in his generation. Nimrod was one who lived in the spirit of the Antichrist, a forceful voice and force against the things and plans of God, whom Satan used to devise a new method and plan of thwarting God's plan of redemption, to bring into the world the seed of woman of Genesis 3.15, who was to crush the serpent's head. And history shows us that it was through Nimrod that the pervasive mother-son mystery religion and worship had its origin. History records that Nimrod's wife, Saramanus, came to be called the Supreme One. And legend has it that Saramanus was impregnated by a sunbeam and gave birth to a son named Tammuz, which was clearly an attempt at portraying a divine conception. And that's not all. One day while out hunting, Tammuz was killed by a wild boar, and Saramanus was so distraught that she wept and cried and would not eat for 40 days. And at the end of those 40 days, guess what happened? Any guess? Tammuz rose from the dead. An obvious attempt at portraying a divine resurrection. And it was in these origins that the beginning of the systematic mystery religion of Babylon finds its roots. As a man derived religion whose origins were from the beginning against the Lord, the voice and spirit of the Antichrist down to this very day, rooted as it were in Nimrod and crafted by none other than Satan, the fallen cherub who longed so desperately to be like God. And the development of this mother-son worship 
which had its origins with Ceremanus and Tammuz, spread across the entire civilized world. In Asia, her name was Ishtar, and her son was Bacchus. In Egypt, her name was Isis, and her son Osiris. In India, her name was Issi, and her son was Iswaran. In Asia, Sibyl, and her son Duis. In Greece, Aphrodite, and her son Eros. And in Rome, Venus, and her son Cupid. All of which were counterfeits and derived for the sole purpose of making the legitimate virgin birth and divine son seem as just one among many others, of no special account, one in just a long list of other mother-son combinations having supposed divine origins. And what in the greatest deception of all was the way in which the Roman Catholic Church took the true virgin birth and divine son relationship and continued to perpetuate the mother-son mystery religion wherein Mary, Jesus' birth mother, is viewed as a perpetual virgin and as a co-redemptrix together with her son in the saving of lost souls, thereby deceiving people and causing them to commit spiritual adultery with her rather than to experience true spiritual union with her son, Jesus who is Christ the Lord alone. And down to this very day, the Roman Catholic Church is the ultimate perpetuation of the false mother-son religious system begun with Nimrod, the great hunter of the souls of men, in that the spirit of Antichrist has successfully and seemingly permanently obscured and tainted the purity of the gospel message within the Roman Church through their continual veneration of Mary. And perhaps it's for this reason that John, in Revelation 17.5, identified Rome as, quote, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. It seems that the spirit of Antichrist has so craftily nestled himself up against truth within a so-called legitimate church that the perpetuation of that we see down to this very day. And as we know at the end of time, out of a revived Roman Empire, some sort of a Western European confederation of nations, will come the Antichrist, the ultimate offspring, seed of Satan, the serpent from Genesis 3, who will be the ultimate hunter of souls of men. And during the Great Tribulation, all people will be commanded to bow to the image of the Antichrist. Those who comply will receive his mark and give him their allegiance. Those who do not comply will be hunted down and slain. But, on a parallel track, going back to Nimrod and his kingdom of Babel, not too far away from Babel in, in ancient Babylon was another city. It too was inhabited by a people given over to idolatry. It was situated along the Euphrates River. It was known as Ur of the Chaldeans. And in Ur was one man named Abram, later changed to Abraham. And in some way not told to us, Abraham abandoned his father's religion and was called by God to be a follower of the only true living God. 
the great lover of souls. And to Abraham, God gave a series of unconditional unilateral promises in what became known as the Abrahamic covenant. And primary to this covenant was the promise that, quote, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And it was this promise to Abraham that identified him as God's chosen channel through whom the seed of woman was to come. And looking forward in time, it was this promise which pointed to a lowly people, the Jews, living in an insignificant land in Israel within an obscure village, Bethlehem, there in a stable for animals, a righteous, God-fearing Jewish girl, a virgin named Mary, gave birth to the Lamb of God. Just as God had shown the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us, a sign that no one should have missed. The entire Old Testament is thus a history of how God worked through the nations of men to bring about the fulfillment of the safely delivery of the Son, Jesus the Christ, the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15, of whom would be come and be the blessing to the entire world. From Adam to Abraham to Jesus, the Son of God, who will crush the head of the seed of the serpent, the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist that is still waging war against God's plans and purpose even down to this very day. We see two men, Nimrod and Abraham, two systems the self-works religious system of Romanism and the faith principle of biblical Christianity as founded in Abraham. Two people, two religious systems, humanism, biblical theism. These people and systems have been in conflict since the beginning of human history. And it was for this very purpose that Satan took possession of a serpent wormed his way into a garden and deceptively lied to Eve in order to mar the image and beauty of God in man, which thus started a conflict that made Christmas absolutely necessary. And it's for this reason that we perpetually remember and extol the first advent of Jesus Christ who was born in Bethlehem, under Roman rule, who was rescued, if you think about it, again, by God when the Satan-inspired Herod killed all the male children in Bethlehem, two years of age and under, yet another attempt to snuff out and to kill the seed of the woman as promised in Genesis 3.15 so so Satan's head would not ultimately be crushed and doomed forever into hell. Satan has been working to thwart the plans of God from the beginning of time before the beginning of time. The story of the advent of Jesus Christ is divine poetry of unparalleled beauty and consequence. It's the story of God's glory and grace and the redemption of sinful man and of triumph over his ancient foe. The beautiful cherub who dared to be like God. This is the conflict that makes Christmas so necessary. And we must never forget that Jesus wasn't born 
to establish a holiday, another holy day. Jesus was born so that God's glory would look beautifully amazing through trophies of grace upon whom he showed mercy and had grace toward in his saving and redeeming of sinners Jesus was born for the express purpose of putting a boot on the head of the serpent. And aren't you glad? And aren't you glad that you're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins? Our eyes have been opened. And when we rehearse a story like this, that make the conflict that makes Christmas necessary, those who have had their spiritual eyes open, we can see these things. We have perspective because of our biblical worldview. And it's from this perspective and from this biblical worldview that we need to move ourselves outward. The church gathers to be encouraged and refreshed, but we must move out into that cultural air that, that, that's mo- movement is by the very spirit of Antichrist itself. And there is where we do the work of ministry. Amen? Let me tell you, people need the Lord. Because when, when, when this conflict that made Christmas necessary is ultimately at its completion, Satan and his emissaries and all who have rejected Christ will forever go into a place of eternal torment. The Bible refers to that place as hell. And we as humans, we don't get to kind of rewrite the scriptures We were recipients of these divine and spirit-inspired scriptures. We don't get to rewrite them to make it fit our moral interest and, and needs of the moment. We need to repent of sin and turn to Jesus Christ, the one whose boot is going on the head of the serpent. In him is life and life exclusively. And people need the Lord, and we need to be that agent that tells people this great news. Now, Listen, if you're here this morning and you've yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ exclusively, let me encourage you to do that today. Merry Christmas. Today is the day of salvation. If you've yet to be saved and if you've yet to turn and to submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ, please do that today. Find myself, Brother Royce, Pastor Matt. Let us know. We would love to walk with you on the steps of of how this glorious life with Christ begins and where to go next. And for those of us who know Christ, let's be strengthened. There's been a war and a conflict been going on from before the creation of Adam and Eve with God's ancient foe, the beautiful cherub, Satan. And there are souls out there today that need the Lord, and he has saved you for such a time and purpose as that so that you can be a perpetual Merry Christmas everywhere you go. That you can share the love of God through Jesus Christ perpetually everywhere you go. Amen? Amen. That's what our lives consist of. So Merry Christmas. Let's pray.